Hello and welcome to DIY TDCS, where we explore what's happening in the fascinating world of transcranial direct current stimulation. Today is Friday, February 26, 2016, and I'm speaking with Anna Wexler. Anna Wexler is a PhD candidate in the STS Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT. Her dissertation focuses on the ethical, social, and regulatory implications of consumer non-invasive brain stimulation. So Anna, naturally prior to our interview, I, I did a little digging around on the online and uh, mm-hmm. I have to say you seem to be having a, an awful lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, considering all you've been up to, the the filmmaking, years of traveling and travel writing, I'm very curious to know what led to the halls of academia. Was it part of the plan all along? Not really. So I, you know, as an undergraduate, I, I studied uh, both writing and uh, brain and cognitive science. And I really loved brain science. Uh, and after I graduated, I went into, well, I had a brief detour to documentary filmmaking, but um, mostly my, my paying work was as a science writer. Uh, and I was based in Israel for a number of years in Tel Aviv. And one of the most interesting things that I was writing about was brain-computer interfaces. And that just really, they really blew my mind. And I was thinking a lot about the, the social and ethical implications of them. So I decided that I didn't just want to write about other people's work. I wanted to write about my own stuff too and do my own research. So that's why I decided to apply for the MIT program. And then when I got in there and started to think about doing a dissertation, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot. It seemed like brain-computer interfaces were a little too far in the future. Still really interesting things, but I I didn't feel like there was enough uh, meat there to do Mm -hmm. a dissertation. But, but my interest in BCIs is definitely what brought me back to MIT, to academia. Excellent. So we first met on Twitter uh, about two years ago around interviews you were doing towards your dissertation. Mm-hmm. At that time, you were collecting information around TDCS and DIY TDCS in particular. That might have evolved since then. Can you tell us what you're working on? Sure. I mean, I think it's great that you're interviewing me because we originally met and I interviewed you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so so that's kind of involved more generally into the consumer use of TDCS or the home use of TDCS, broadly speaking. So each chapter of my dissertation focuses on a different aspect of the home use of TDCS. So I've done a bit about specifically DIY TDCS, there's a shortened version of that. That's the Journal of Medical Ethics paper. The actual chapter is a bit longer. What we're going to talk about today, I guess, is, is the regulatory aspect. So that that's one part. I've just finished working on a very long project about the history of the home use of uh, electrical stimulation at home. Mm-hmm. And I am now working on a project on the off-label use of TDCS. And I have a few other ideas lined up for what the other chapters are going to be, but, but different social and regulatory and ethical aspects uh, of the home use of TDCS. And when you say TDCS, do you mean also more broadly like TACS and TRNS? And Yeah, I probably should use TES uh, as, the, as the umbrella term, mm-hmm. um, but, I, but I guess I'm stuck using TDCS. But yeah, you're right, T, TES uh, is, is more correct. 
I'm very intrigued about there being a very long chapter about the history of electrical stimulation. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, people in the U.S., people had medical batteries and used to stimulate all over their body uh, using both direct and alternating current. Over about 30, 40 years, there were over 150 manufacturers who sold these devices. So if you compare it to today, uh, back then, actually, it seems far more popular. Wow. So that's just one interesting thing. They always bring out the, the electric eels and... Uh, but the guy who manipulated facial muscles in France, I forget his name. Yeah, Duchesne. Yeah, but I, I had no idea that it was that widespread in the United States. What I think is really interesting is, is that it was used by both physicians and by home users simultaneously, which is why I think it's interesting to compare it to TDCS today. I think there's a lot of really interesting parallels. Oh, that, that sounds really fascinating. What Would they use electrodes? Yeah, they had sponges, they had um, handheld electrodes. They actually had a, a larger variety than I've seen today. They had like tongue electrodes, head electrodes. Some manufacturers sold, you know, dozens of different electrodes geared to different parts of the body. Can you see any direct lineage between any of those devices and devices that were around like in the 70s? Because I know, I would say there's not a direct lineage, mm-hmm. although the similarities are quite shocking actually when you get into them quite striking i should say <laughs> i like shocking shocking's okay yeah they were called medical batteries and i think most people did today dismiss them as quack devices but they actually did provide current alternating and direct to different parts of the body so you know with what we know today about tes i think people should revisit it whether they actually were quack devices where were you researching that where, where did you dig up these gems? You know, I did a lot of digital research online, but I also spent several weeks at an incredible museum in Minneapolis called uh, the Bakken Museum of Electricity and Life. And I had a, a small grant to be there. And they have probably the most extensive collection in the world of electric health-related devices and manuscripts. So it was actually, the museum was founded by Earl Bakken, who um, also founded Medtronic. Um, and he started collecting all these kind of weird medical, electric medical devices. Um, and the collection grew and, and eventually became a museum. Wow. And how do you spell Bakken? B-A-K-K-E-N. Well, I'll definitely do some research on my own before our next interview. <laughs> this is really fascinating. So let's move into... Um your paper, I was completely baffled and overwhelmed. You know, I talked to Robin at Caputron, and they were about to release their MindGear device, which was basically a CES device. And so that rekindled my interest in like Fisher Wallace and the Alpha Stim. And I was trying to get a beat around why you'd need a prescription for one and not the other. And I had poked my foot in the in the water of the FDA website, and it was just, it's, it's kind of horrifying. So when your paper came out, it was like wonderful to see because there it was, the whole thing laid out for just about anyone could understand. Um, it's, it Thanks. must have been an immense amount of work that went into that paper. Well, I should mention the paper. It's called A Pragmatic Analysis of the Regulation of Consumer Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation Devices in the United States. And I believe it was published in October of 2015. 
Uh, something like that. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, so how much uh, work went into that paper? Oh, a tremendous, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a tremendous amount. And um, I don't have a, a legal background either. So it wasn't until I audited a wonderful class at Harvard Law. I think the class was called Food and Drug Law. And it was taught by uh, Professor Peter Barton Hutt. I felt like after taking that class, that gave me the tools to actually write this paper, although I'd been struggling with a lot of the same questions and trying to understand things before, but but I, I couldn't get my head around it. And I should say he's a wonderful professor and has, you know, really generous office hours. So I was in his office quite a bit, mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, kind of picking his brain and, and getting my head around it uh, as well. From DIY to DTC, A Short History of the Consumer TDCS Device Market is part one of your paper. I guess we should say that DTC means direct consumer. Can we go over the the timeline a little bit? Sure. And you probably know just as much as I do, if not more, about about the timeline. Well, I'll kick in. uh, I'll throw in a little. But I actually got started myself around 2012. I think that's when things seem to have cohered, mm-hmm. at least the DIY TDCS uh, movement. You um, cite a couple of earlier articles uh, in the paper that I did recognize as familiar when I pulled them up, uh, but they go back as far as 2007. I know that for me, it was that Sally Adi article. I think one version of it is called Better Living Through Electrochemistry. That got me really excited, and uh, then I got online, and there was uh, Anthony Lee with his YouTube videos, mm-hmm. and then it just seems to have taken off from there. Can you think of any other significant milestones in the evolution of the DIY? Um, yeah, the Sally D article seems to have gained popularity. I guess more recently, the Radio Lab episode. Right. Yeah, I mean that's. A bit later, but but that's something that people definitely reference, at least that I've talked to. Right, uh, probably the New Yorker article. I forget yeah. her name, but uh, that was a yeah. big deal. Yeah, uh, that was a good article. And uh, GoFlow, the initial GoFlow, that in my mind was, you know, a milestone. Especially for those of us who can't or don't build our own devices, that was certainly looked promising. Was the device from Hong Kong available? Then. That's a good question. I'm not sure if it was already available or not. Well, the GoFlow never came out. I mean, at least. Right. The, so it might have been around right around the same time. By DIY, are you thinking that you actually go to Radio Shack or something like that and buy your own parts and piece it together yourself according to a schematic you found on the internet? Yeah, I think that's true DIY. And and for me, focus or think seems like true DTC. But then you have the kits that, for me, kind of fall somewhere in the middle. You know, they're not intending to appeal to a huge audience. Or, or maybe they're trying to, but, you know, they're not wearables. Uh, they're not out-of-the-box wearables, I should mm-hmm. say. So and I've also seen people it. refer to DIY as whether or not you have a, a DIY device or a DTC device. The application of TDCS is is what you're doing yourself. You're doing the research for the montage, and mm. you know, so so it does definitely get a little confusing there. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I haven't thought of that. The doing it yourself is the application of you're deciding your stimulation parameters. Maybe we need another term. 
Well, that's that's why I've sort of shifted to to home user. Um, ah. And P- I should give Peter Reiner credit. He was the first one to suggest that term. Peter Reiner is. He wrote along with Nick Fitz um, a paper in 2013 about the regulation of DIY brain stimulation devices. Okay, is he also up in BC? Yeah, he's at UBC. Home use, okay. So we'll adopt that term. Okay, so let's get into the weeds a little bit. The second part of your paper is called The Importance of Intended Use for Medical uh, Device Regulation. I guess we should have a look at these terms, um, if you would. A Class 2 device Mm -hmm. versus a Class 3 device. Yeah. Have you got a simple way to describe that? Yeah. So I guess before 1976, uh, medical devices weren't required to show safety and efficacy before going to market. So they still were regulated by the FDA, but the FDA only had um, post-market authority, like they do now over supplements, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, They can only take action if they get certain negative reports from supplements or or there's some issue. But what the device amendments did was they established a more coherent regulatory framework and basically they divided devices into three different types based on their risk level. So class one devices are your lowest risk, like band-aids. Class two are devices that pose a moderate risk. So class one Right. Class one are subject to general control. So like certain device labeling. So band-aids, you know, apply with certain labeling, but there's not a whole lot of other controls placed on them. Class two are moderate risk devices, um, which are subject to kind of an additional level of special controls, what is called special controls. And class three pose a high risk of illness or injury. You know, for example, things like pacemakers. Uh, and then for those products, the manufacturer needs to demonstrate that the device is safe and effective for its intended use before going to market. Um, and that's done through submitting a pre-market application, getting pre-market approval before going to market. So is that the same hurdle that someone bringing a new drug to market would have to go through? Uh, well, drugs have different regulatory pathways than devices, so there's no class 1, class 2, or class 3 designations. So all new drugs have to demonstrate safety and efficacy before going to market. So uh, in effect, they're all regulated like class 3 devices. But is the same pre-market, is it the same pre-market yeah. application? Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that process, what, what, what it entails? In drug trials, there's a series of stages or what are known as phases. Basically, your initial phase, the phase one trials, just basically establish safety, that the drug or device is generally safe and tolerated. Um, Phase two um, goes to a slightly larger population usually and looks at safety and effectiveness. Phase three goes to even larger populations and looks at smaller adverse events and then phase four is a kind of post-market uh surveillance Mm -hmm. or not post sorry phase four is a kind of post-approval post-market surveillance to make sure that there's no adverse events coming out after the drug was approved or device was approved Uh, but it's basically a pretty long expensive and and extensive process uh, to demonstrate safety and efficacy for a given indication now what is as opposed to a market notification 
you're basically just notifying the FDA that you're going to market. Technically, all devices require pre-market notification, uh, though the FDA has exempted many class one devices from pre-market notification and some class two devices as well. So if you're confident that your device is exempt from pre-market notification, you can go straight to market. And, and generally speaking, if you're confident in the classification of your device, uh, you can comply with regulatory pathways for whatever class your device falls into. Alternatively, you can ask the FDA beforehand how it will classify your device and then comply with the regulatory framework for that device, for that class of devices. Seems like that's what Think did. Yeah. Uh-huh. They assumed it was probably a class two, but they reached out to the FDA for like an official kind of ruling on whether or not their device was class two. Is that how you would frame it? or? Yeah, a 513G, which is basically a request for information. Okay. As opposed to a 510K application that demonstrates substantial equivalence to a predicate device. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the 510K is, is a kind of quirk of, of the medical device amendments, and it doesn't exist in drugs. There's no equivalent. Um, but basically, if you have a device that's substantially equivalent, and that's a complicated idea, but that is substantially equivalent to a device that exists on the market that has already been approved, you can go to the FDA and say, hey, I'm submitting a 510K. My device looks exactly like this other device here that's been on the market for a while. And if you do that, then you don't have to go through this whole pre-approval process. I see. So, for instance, when Caputron, I, I'm assuming this, I'm, I'm, I don't know for a fact, but let's just use it as an example. When they brought their MindGear device, while it might have had an entirely different waveform than uh, the Fisher-Wallace device, it would still manage to pass the uh, substantial equivalence test? So basically, you could only file a 510K if your device is substantially equivalent to a Class two device. You can't do that if you have a pacemaker, let's say. You can say, oh, hey, my, my pacemaker is similar to another pacemaker, so here's my 510K. You can only do it for Class two devices, which are moderate risk products. So the quirk here is that CES is a class three device mm. and it's one of the only class three devices that you can submit a 510k for. And the reason for that is because when the medical device amendments were rolled out, suddenly the FDA had to classify all these different medical devices that were already on the market. And it couldn't just pull everything off the market until it was able to reclassify everything. So it, there was a process of reclassification. And certain devices that were on the market before 1976, what you'll sometimes hear called pre-amendments devices, they were grandfathered in into class three and sort of awaiting reclassification into another category. And there's only a few of those devices left that haven't been reclassified. CES is one of them. And for those very small subsection of devices, you can submit a 510K to get approval. Uh, okay. If you can show that your device is substantially equivalent. Well, that will help explain some of my confusion. That is pretty confusing. And all that happened in 1976? Yeah, that's when that's when the medical device amendments were passed. Okay. Uh, so, so basically, CES never had to show safety or efficacy. It never went through this pre-market uh, approval process. 
Right. It was grandfathered. Yeah. As long as we're on the subject, it seems like some of this is seemingly coming to some further resolution kind of as we speak, because there's that uh, new rule proposal. If I could just read you this quote off the FDA rule proposal, maybe you could comment on it. The Food and Drug Administration is issuing a proposed administrative order to reclassify the cranial electrotherapy stimulator CES devices intended to treat insomnia and or anxiety, a pre-amendments class 3 device into class 2, parentheses special controls, and subject to pre-market notification and to require the filing of a pre-market approval application, a PMA, for CES devices intended to treat depression. Basically, the FDA is saying CES devices for anxiety and insomnia, this is a proposed order or rule, those the FDA is proposing will be classified as class two, uh, requiring only the notification. And class two are devices that have special controls um, that are sufficient to establish safety. But the class three would be a much more difficult hurdle, right? Because it would require the PMA, the pre-market approval. And that's this extensive process to demonstrate safety and efficacy. Mm. And this is surprising because at the last time the FDA commented on this, I believe it was in 2014, where it indicated that it planned to reclassify CES devices for anxiety, insomnia, and depression into class two. Mm. Um, so the really interesting thing is that kind of without any other warning, it decided to split the classification. Hmm. Can you think of any reason why they would have done that? It's an odd move, I should say, and I'm not sure. The regulatory history of this product is <laughs> really long and, and very complicated, but basically it's just been this ongoing battle between FDA manufacturers, but FDA keeps trying to get the CES manufacturers to actually submit a PMA uh, and demonstrate safety and efficacy, and then the manufacturers keep trying to get it reclassified into class two. Mm. So it's almost like a compromise. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. I don't know if the manufacturers would think of it like that. I, I think for them, it's probably a slap in the face because the last proposed order, I should say the FDA's last indication of its intention regarding CES was that they were planning to reclassify it into class two. So it's kind of a big deal that they're not. Does this mean that CES for the purposes of insomnia or anxiety would no longer require a prescription? Um, Well, that's not clear because the FDA's new proposed definition of CES seems to classify it as a prescription device, Uh, but it still remains to be seen because this rule is just a proposed one, not a final one. Okay, I'm going to quote from your paper now uh, because this to me was the most revelatory part of it. Importantly, the definition of a medical device is not based on the mechanism of action of the device, but rather on its intended use. A product is a medical device if it is intended for use in diagnosis or treatment or intended to affect the structure or function of the body. So, just by virtue of how a device is described... Mm-hmm. can indicate whether or not it's a medical device. Is that is am I understanding that right? Yeah. 
So basically, it's not how the device works. It's what the manufacturer is claiming that the device does that's important when considering when something is a medical device. I think the second thing that's very interesting about the definition of the medical device is that it's not just based on intended for use in the diagnosis of disease or other conditions. It's also a device is considered a medical device if it's intended to affect the structure or function of the body of man and other animals or other animals. And that's part of the definition that most people, I would say, don't know about or, or pay less attention to. And that's in many ways... Um, a much trickier part of the definition to interpret. Can you give me an example of how that would come into play? Yeah. I mean, the treadmill is a great example because the treadmill is clearly intended to affect the structure or function of the body in some way. But a treadmill intended for use in medical or therapeutic applications like in a rehab facility or in a hospital, uh, that's considered a medical device. But a treadmill for home use is considered a consumer product. Can you think of a TDCS device claim that would squarely put it in the category of a medical device? Anything that's very clearly related to diagnosing disease or claiming to cure or treat disease, that's a pretty clear-cut case. Any manufacturer that claims that TDCS treats depression, anxiety, any medical condition, mm -hmm. that clearly makes the product a medical device. Right. The, the tricky question is really whether cognitive enhancement claims are considered structure function claims, you know, whether they meet that, that other uh -huh. definition. And that's, that's the real crux of the question. If you made claims towards cognitive enhancement, but didn't mention anything like age-related decline or, or Alzheimer's or anything like that, mm -hmm. maybe you could squeak by. Yeah, it's very possible that you would. And I think you would definitely have a case, I mean, based on the history of these wrinkle remover cream cases and certain other FDA communications. But further complicating this particular issue would be the situation where someone was making kind of cognitive enhancement claims or increasing your edge or whatever, but have another page on their website where they had links to research papers talking about depression or anxiety. Do I understand that correctly? Historically, the FDA has looked at labeling and promotional materials, but it actually can consider a wide variety of other factors. So uh, I have a paragraph, I, I believe I stuck it in a footnote, but basically defining, uh, the FDA defines what it means by intended use. And it actually can consider a whole variety of things, such as circumstances surrounding the distribution of the product, which can mean a lot of things. It could mean looking on the Reddit form, for instance. I, mm. I wouldn't see that as being out of bounds. It would be very rare for the FDA to do that. And really, I would say, not in keeping with what it's done historically. But um, it can definitely do that. So a situation where, let's say, someone was labeling their device as a direct current device. That's all they said about it. Mm -hmm. But on the same page, they're making available uh, sponge electrode. Is that kind of fall under what you're discussing? That I, I think a more clear-cut case would be someone is uh, marketing just a direct current source, but as what is clearly the same company, let's say on Twitter or maybe even on the Reddit forum, maybe in a newsletter, they are very clearly saying that their product can treat depression. Uh, you just have to look at each case individually. 
mm-hmm. but certainly something. I mean, it would be rare for the FDA to do, but it but it's certainly well within its authority to do that. Mm-hmm. Your paper mentions an FDA draft guidance paper entitled "General Wellness." Mm-hmm. Policy for Low-Risk Devices, wherein it stated, among the examples of acceptable wellness claims provided are those relating to, quote-unquote, mental acuity, concentration, problem-solving, and relaxation and stress management. Can you tell me a little bit about what the intention of, of that that guidance is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of these wearable wellness products hitting the market. Um, And I think this guidance was mostly addressed to these products, you know, like, I don't know if the Fitbit's a good example, but yes, things like the Fitbit, you know, that allow you to track different things for certain wellness purposes, maybe not even just tracking, maybe measuring certain things. So for the most part, this was a guidance directed at those products. And basically um, what the FDA said that, is that if you're making a claim that's a general wellness claim, and it gave examples, um, and the product is a low-risk device, we're basically going to exercise enforcement discretion, meaning even though you may fall under our jurisdiction, we're not going to pay that much attention to you, is basically what I was saying. But, But it should be emphasized that this is just a first draft, so this is not anything final. But yeah, I think a lot of companies um, in the wearable fitness, wearable health market are are looking to this and feeling a bit more comfortable about the claims they can make. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, I mean, frankly, is surprising. Uh, acceptable claims include those relating to improving muscle size, toning the body, enhancing cardiac function. I mean, it's surprising that the FDA isn't going to heavily regulate those sorts of claims. What this guidance does is it also puts puts, uh, some of the burden on the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which regulates unfair business practices and unfair or deceptive claims. The FDA looks at safety, effectiveness, that sort of thing for for drugs and medical devices, but the FTC looks at whether uh, your advertising claim can be misleading. Part five of your paper is safety and advertising regulations for consumer products. And I'm just going to cherry pick here. Thus, if the FDA classifies consumer TTCS products as unrestricted medical devices, oversight of their advertising would fall under the FTC and labeling under the FDA. If such devices are considered consumer products, oversight of both advertising and labeling would fall under the broad brush of the FTC. There's nothing really to stop the FTC from deciding it wants to play a bigger part in regulating these sorts of devices or anything that's making these sorts of claims. Is that that correct? Do you see that? Yeah, there's nothing to stop it. Although, if these things look or smell like medical devices, the FTC might be more hesitant to take action. That is, it doesn't want to step on the toes of the FDA necessarily. Unless there was some clarity from the FDA on how it intends to regulate TDCS, I'd be surprised if the FTC took action first, although it could. Okay. Maybe now is a good time to um, talk about what happened to uh, TDCS device kit. Sure. One of the reasons why that was an interesting case, I think, is because there was someone at the FDA who emailed the California Department of Public Health about... TDCS device kit, um, which is based in California, and said, hey, this device 
and, and I don't know what the email said, although I have a FOIA request out for the email. Apparently, there was a five-page analysis uh, accompanying this email from an engineer at the FDA to a biomedical engineer at the FDA to the California Department of Public Health, basically determining that TDCS device kit was selling, illegally selling a medical device. In the report, the biomedical engineer wrote that the device was a class three device that would require a 510K and it hadn't gotten approval. There's only a few new devices that you can submit a 510K for that are class three devices. And one of them is CES. In the paper, I kind of trace it backwards and, and assume that this biomedical engineer erroneously assumed that this device was uh, an unapproved CES device. And that was the basis for the action. And so what happened when uh, he contacted uh, the CDPH, California so, Department of Public Health? Yeah. So the CDPH then took action because under California state law, they have a... Sherman Food Drug and Cosmetic Law, usually called the Sherman Law, but medical devices that aren't federally approved for market in the U.S. are considered misbranded or adulterated under the Sherman Law, so under the state law. And what was the action? They sent an investigator out to meet with uh, the person. You know, they looked into the device and where it was being manufactured and what device controls were being applied. You know, was it being uh, manufactured under good manufacturing practices? Was the place registered with the state? And obviously it wasn't. Basically, they were like, this is a medical device. And if you want to keep it on the market, then, you know, you got to get the ball rolling on on the approvals that you need. And um it seems that the owner didn't take any action and they basically issued a press release warning customers not to use the device and the manufacturer ended up issuing a recall of the device. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to the manufacturer yourself? I tried to get in touch with him, mm-hmm. but uh, I haven't been able to. The, the website was defunct. I tried calling, but, but no response. So... The overall summary of your paper was that perhaps we don't need any further regulation, that there's plenty of regulation now to cover just about any scenario that should come up. Yeah, I I think that was largely in response to people who were saying, oh, this is unregulated. I I feel like you'll find very few things in the United States that are unregulated. You know, (laughs) if it's not regulated as one thing, it's regulated as another thing. And very often multiple agencies may have overlapping jurisdiction. I think you could say that there's enforcement ambiguity or enforcement uncertainty about who's going to regulate this because there are so many agencies that may have jurisdiction over these devices. But to say that it's unregulated or we need to develop entirely new regulation, um, that to me didn't seem like a very solid proposal. I'm kind of at the end of my questions around the paper. Did I miss anything that you can think of? No, I, I think the main crux or the main crux of it for me is whether cognitive enhancement claims are going to be considered structure function claims uh, under the FDA. That's the real big open question. And then the other point that we didn't cover was the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Let's say these products, a TES consumer product, is FDA decides not to consider it a medical device. The Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is a federal agency, can set certain safety standards for products that may be hazardous. But it hasn't so far played a role in regulating or enforcing any kind of TDCS or similar devices? 
it has not played any role in enforcing similar devices, although uh, one representative from the CPSC spoke at the recent FDA meeting in November, and it seems like they're developing something around wearable technology products. Ah, that makes sense. And it'll be interesting to see how TES plays out in between those two agencies, mm-hmm. in between the FDA and the CPSC in this field. And then the, with the FTC kind of falling in between the two? Yeah, so the FTC really only regulates claims, advertising claims. Oh, but actually, it's not, I mean, it does unfair or deceptive business practices, and it, it can interpret that broadly. But mostly, we've seen it take action with regard to misleading claims. So you have those three agencies, federal agencies, and then we're left with the only regulatory action to date, which has come at the state level. Right. So it's really an interesting mix of all these different authorities. Yeah, uh, it really is. That may play a role. Oh, this has been great. I have uh, no doubt that this will be very valuable for a lot of curious people in the space. And I'm really now I'm really intrigued to come back and uh, talk to you about uh, the history of would you call it ES or TES? Well, it was home stimulation using electrical stimulation all over the body. So it wasn't exclusively about the head, but the head wasn't ignored. So I don't have a good acronym for it yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll definitely set that up. In the meantime, um, I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, for all the work you've obviously put into this. Really appreciate having you in the community, so to speak, to uh, bounce things off. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening. For more information about Anna and links to her research papers, check out the show notes for this episode at DIYTDCS.com.